Vijay Sheshadri is a poet, essayist, and literary critic whose 2014 collection, Three Sections, won the Pulitzer Prize. This is Vijay Sheshadri. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Cool. I'm here with Vijay Sheshadri. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It, I Well, I'm glad that... Uh, we can have a conversation because you have had a, you have a very for a poet a very interesting backstory, especially for a modern poet. I mean, there there are all kinds of uh, like Lord Byron esque figures who live these colorful lives, but it seems like poets today basically just you know come out of the womb, go to university, get their MFA, and you know teach for the rest of their lives. But you you were born in India, you moved to Ohio at five, and then. Uh, you know, speeding up the timeline here a little bit, you, you worked as a commercial fisherman for, for a while. Like, I mean, I could go down the list of the, the odd jobs you had truck driver in, uh, in San Francisco, you were a logger for a little bit. It, it yeah. seems like you were doing a lot of, uh, working with your hands. I mean, that's, um, did, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, the, it does seem a little romantic from the perspective of, 2021 or even the year 2000, those things. But you have to remember, Duncan, that I came out of the 1960s. Yes. And in some sense, and I didn't come to Ohio right away. We went to Canada for a couple of years and then we came to Ohio at the beginning of the 60s. And so the 60s were sort of my decade and there were kind of a tumultuous decade, the decade in which I grew up. So by the time the 70s rolled around, it was very, very natural for people to be doing these kind of things who identified with the counterculture. So it was, I don't think I was kind of a, you know, I mean, I had a propensity to adventure. Yes. As most people who are young do but I was also living in a very adventurous time. So I don't want to take uh, too much credit for my... Uh, I, you know. I see. That yeah. it's, I mean, I, I've talked to a, a few people recently who came out of that, that era as well, and the stories out of it, it, it seems like a different time, especially when people tell me their rent prices. Like, oh man, I was living at a co-op for... 50 bucks a month. And it's like, what? Like, but you, you said something in there that this was par for the course almost for people who identified with the counterculture that time. You right. were among that, that group? Yeah, I had gone to college when I was very young and I'd been very isolated in, you know, in my schooling before that. And, uh, when I went to college, it was 1970, and I'd just turned 16. And that was sort of the height of the real transformation. And as a 16-year-old, I just drank all of that stuff in. It became very much a part of me. I was very political. This was the period of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And there was tremendous radicalism afloat everywhere and it was also the the beginnings of the environmental movement 
And so all of those things became connected in people's minds as a kind of set of circumstances that demanded a radical response somehow. And, you know, there were two things you could do. You could throw bombs, yes. which wasn't in my nature to do. You know? I talked to people on the show who have thrown some bombs before. I just had Bill Ayers on. Wow, yeah. Yeah, Bill Ayers is a classic example of that era, right? And, uh, you know, a little older than I am and, you know, kind of an embodiment of a certain kind of political radicalism and a political intensity. I had the same political intensity, but my response was to sort of drop out, mm. right? The society was hopelessly corrupt and violent. And the, the thing to do was to start a new civilization somewhere else. And all of those ideas, they were rich and vital. And also, you know, thinking back on it, somewhat incoherent but they provided tremendous energy for me. And uh, so what really happened was I was kind of following the counterculture as it was slowly dwindling away mm. because that's where I had found a home. And one of the pockets in which it lived a long time, the counterculture of the 60s was the Oregon coast. Yeah. And there's still remnants of it there. Just like if you go to Northern New Mexico, you'll find remnants of the counterculture and various other places in America. And uh, so that's how I wound up as a fisherman. I see. And worked as a logger, did all that stuff. And it was great. I was really happy. I was there for five years and I really, yeah. But you know, times do change. And, uh, and the big watershed was the election of Ronald Reagan. That kind of ended that period of tremendous liberalism in America. And, uh, and also, you know, one has to grow up and kind of, you know, yeah. make a place in the world. And that's what I hadn't been doing. And Can so that's when I decided to just pursue my literary ambitions. Um, well, for can I can I just ask you something really quick? Do you, do you have a fan on in the background or something like that? I I, keep I do. I have a air conditioner on. Should I turn it off? Is it possible if it's not? Too yeah. Hold on a second. Thank you. How's that? That's that's much better. Thank you. Did uh, it ruin the? Uh, no, no. I, I I can do some EQ on it to to sort of filter it out a little bit. But it's um yeah no much better now. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, but I, I when when you're saying you had these literary ambitions, at at what point when you're a logger or a commercial fisherman, which actually by the way. When you were a fisherman, are we talking deadliest catch style or was this much more mundane? You know, it's a culture that's pretty much vanished now because of the uh, 
devastating kind of loss of the fish on the West Coast, but this was salmon fishing. It was hook and line fishing in small boats on the ocean, trollers, trolling for salmon. And it was an incredibly sort of intricate, complicated craft. It wasn't like going out on the Bering Sea, where I also had been, you know, but I was working as a biologist. And, uh, but on the Bering Sea, fishing for king crab, what you're talking about is large boats and almost industrial fishing. This was kind of an earlier version of the way in which people fish, very simple and complicated without riggers. And they still fish like that on the West Coast, but there are fewer and fewer salmon, so the industry has sort of died away. And, uh, and it was a kind of beautiful, romantic way of fishing. I mean, unlike, you know, working in logging, and I never worked very much in logging. I don't know where that comes from in various bios that are on the uh, web. <laughs> you know, I did set chokers for a while, but that was brutal work. And I tree planted in the winter when there was no fishing or when you know, there were no jobs available because it, the storms in winter had shut down the fishing fleet. You know, I would work as a tree planter on the coast range. Mm. And it was sort of a subsistence life and it was kind of physically hard and one never made that much money, but it was just great to be out in nature. And the communities there were very, very strong. They were kind of combination of old fishing communities and sort of, you know, long-haired countercultural communities. And they all sort of joined together in this very nice way. And, uh, yeah. and in fact, I think what happened was that I sl- slowly saw that dissolving around me. So in 1982, I just decided to come back to New York. So, yeah. And that that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's, a prime example of network effects where things start to dissolve. And as they dissolve, they dissolve more quickly for the reason that you just gave, because people like you are looking around and seeing, okay, this is not going to last. Therefore I've got to leave. And that propels more and more people. It, it, it really, you said it really was the election of Reagan then, huh? That, that sort of was the final nail in the coffin there. Well, I mean, I think the sensibility of America changed with the election of Reagan. The 70s were a really radical decade, more radical than the 60s. The 60s set in place what occurred in the 70s. And, uh, you know, in terms of the sexual revolution, in terms of people sort of seeking freedom. And there was a sense in which that whole movement went a little too far. I mean, it certainly was the case in mainstream America that they wanted to get back to a degree of stability that the 70s didn't have. And I don't know how much you remember of the history of the 70s, but you were talking about periods of hyperinflation. You were talking about real instability in the economy. You know, you had Watergate, you had uh, 
Jimmy Carter, you had, you know, the Iranian hostage situation and stuff. So the instability of that decade, I think, had unnerved America collectively. Mm. So when Reagan came along, the whole culture in a way retreated. And, uh, and a lot was lost, you know, especially in environmentalism, a lot was lost because those years of the Carter administration were very, very forward-looking and progressive in their response to things like, you know, climate change and getting away from fossil fuels and stuff like that. And all of that got shut down and it didn't really pick up again for 20 or 30 years. So, yeah, it's a shame. It, and your first collection of poems, you went off to, to Columbia to get your master's. Was that something that you, you had these literary ambitions? Was that something that you said, okay, this is the best way for me to be able to survive off of my art is to go into the academy? Or was this a question of saying, uh, you know, I, I want to be a better poet. I, I should go to university to get some training. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the former more than anything else. This was a period when there weren't many MFA programs and I had been basically off the grid for five years. I didn't really know any writers. I wasn't hanging out with artists. I was basically hanging out with fishermen and, you know, and elk people who kind of were professionals, you know, say social workers or, uh, you know, journalists in the small town in which I lived on the Oregon coast, but uh, I didn't have any connection to an intellectual life. And also, I mean, in the aftermath of the dwindling and the dissipating of counterculture, I felt like I'd been living in you know, what was an environment that was rural to the point of being a wilderness. You know, I mean, I lived in Lincoln County in Oregon at that time. You know, it had, it was a county the size of Rhode Island with a permanent population of 30,000 people. Yeah. I mean, it was really sparse and I longed to get back to a city and I longed to kind of you know, really explore my ambitions. And I think that's what decided me about going to Columbia. And, um, you know, because I had been accepted to Iowa too. And, uh, and I thought, well, no, I don't want to exchange one small town for another. Yeah. I want to go to this big city. And also I wanted to get back in touch with the Indian side of me. And I knew that Columbia would help me do that. And it did. And, uh, so, yeah. Well, why did Columbia help you do that? Because they had uh, Indic scholars, they taught Indian languages. And I came to Columbia and I started studying those languages and in fact, I didn't really have money to finish the program, but I won a fellowship, you know, through the university itself. 
through my kind of language studies that allowed me to finish my MFA. So it all turned out really well then. And, uh, and then, so I went to the other side of my experience, which was India and I, uh, you know, in the years following my MFA, I was in the PhD program in Middle Eastern languages and cultures at Columbia. And I actually went and lived in Pakistan to study Urdu and Persian. How long did you live in Pakistan? Just like six months. Okay. And, and I decided not that, you know, I had come to New York to be a poet and that's what I wanted to do. So I never got my PhD. I see. And, and I, I had read an interview where, where you, um, you, you really identified you said with a, a line from James Joyce, which is the, the history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And, and you talk about moving from one country and culture to another, even though you were five, it still has a powerful hold on you, I would imagine. But what, what does that line in particular mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the drama of history as Joyce interprets it really has to do with kind of the burden of being Irish in some sense and the difficulties of Irish history. And in my case, I would say that it was the difficulties of being a person of color and being you know, Indian and South Asian in America and, uh, and recognizing that as a historical circumstance that I had to escape somehow. And, and I think that's sort of a situation that's been a constant feature of American life. And, and it certainly was something that was important for me to wrestle with through all those years. Eventually, when I came to New York, I became a New Yorker and I sort of freed myself of that. But, you know, when I was living in America proper, and I don't quite consider New York America proper, I consider New York its own location and destination. The racial burden, the historical burden of being in India and all of those things were, uh, things I felt I had to free myself from somehow. Mm. And the counterculture provided me with a perfect opportunity to do that because it was really an alternative culture. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's, um, that makes sense. And at, at what point then where you had this experience in uh, like very remote wild America and you go to a city and you, your first collection of poems, Wild Kingdom, a lot of it is about your experiences in the fishing industry and, and that, um, that area that you left. It would, do, do you feel like that being in a city kind of gave you the space to, to reflect on those experiences? Why did you feel like you wanted, even though you're moving from a uh, more rural area to a city, you're, you're looking back on that time. Like, 
why, I guess. Yeah, I was. But I was also, but Wild Kingdom is also very much a book about race. Mm, yeah. And it's very much a book about New York City. And in some sense, like, you know, there is a long narrative poem that takes place in the salmon fishing industry on the Oregon coast. There's another long narrative poem that was the last poem I wrote in the book that is about its setting is the setting, is the Oregon setting. It takes place in the Coast Range. It's a narrative poem about someone who gets lost in the woods. But I remember when I was writing it, I was really thinking that this person being lost in the woods is an, uh, an allegorical reflection of my experience of New York City. So that poem was really a fusion of an external setting that was wilderness with an internal reality, a psychological reality that came directly out of my experience of New York. I Where I did so many times feel like I was completely lost. So, I mean, you know, I mean, the imagination does strange things with the material it's given and fuses and transposes and uh, amalgamates in these sort of astonishing ways. So, I mean, I think Wild Kingdom is a fusion of two experiences, uh, a, a wilderness experience I had for five years and then the experience of New York up until like a couple of years before the book came out. I see. And, and I also read in an interview somewhere that you said that you used to start your poems with like an image in mind. And I think you gave an example, of like some bird scraping its uh, talons across the water or something like that. And you felt compelled to write a poem just based off that image. Um, and then uh, I, I was going through your, your most recent collection of poems. That was now, this is then. And like some of them, like to the reader, that poem, it, it doesn't begin with an image at all. You're just talking straight to the reader. Like, why do you think the way that you wrote poems changed? Again, we get back to the theme of history. Because when I started writing poetry, and this was in the early 70s, Imagism, you know, the imagism of, say, William Carlos Williams, or the deep images of the poets who were called deep images, you know, and the early Louise Glick, for example, is a poet like that. Imagism of that sort, whether internal or external, was the dominant medium. And the sort of ultimate ambition of a poem at that time, or at least as I tended to understand contemporary poetry, was to make people see. And, uh, and so, you know, that uh, statement I made about the trailing leg of the heron in the water really came from that period of time 
what subsequently happened to me, and I think sort of subsequently happened to American poetry, is that it relinquished that kind of absolute commitment to the image, which was really an outgrowth in some way of modernism. You know, imagism is kind of the pre-modern movement that Pound and Williams and H.D. and Amy Lowell starred in you know, the 1910s. And, uh, and they're tremendously influenced by Chinese poetry, by haiku, right. by stuff like that. And, uh, and eventually, I mean, I think the things you start out with, you tend to outgrow. And you start looking or the mind, the imagination starts kind of craving different approaches, different entries to the poem. And, uh, and so as the influences piled up, you know, I started developing new ways of entering a poem and new ways of thinking about a poem. Yeah. But if I look at all my first, you know, if I look at the poems I wrote from, you know, say, the time I was... 16, 17 to the time I was about 26, 27. They're all really strongly in the district. Hmm. And um, I, I was curious, when you have like a, a poetry collection, I, I kind of try to think about it in terms of like albums where there are a lot of albums nowadays that it's just like a basket of songs and there's no real overarching idea that binds them together. But there's also some albums that each song leads in the next and they all kind of cohere thematically or they're trying to like break through with a certain sound. Uh, wh what about you for a poetry collection? Like how do you decide what goes in and what stays out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I write poems individually for a while. And then in fact, I see a book that is very much like an album that's thematized in some way. And that's when I really wind up writing a lot and writing very quickly. Until then, until sort of, uh, you know, there's a tipping point until there's a kind of uh, a mass of poetry that gives me a sense of a book as a whole. You know, I kind of move slowly and fitfully. And I think all of my books hang together in that way. They're not really miscellaneous collections. They're books in which the poems speak to one another and are engaged in a kind of mutual enterprise somehow. Do, do you do you spend much time worrying about like the order that they they're they're written in? I mean, not the order that they're written in, the order that they're printed in, rather. Well, yeah, I mean, the order there has to be a kind of organic design in my mind to the order, and 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 that has something to do with long poems in relationship to shorter poems. It has something to do with theme. You know, for example, in my latest book, which you just mentioned, there are kind of three elegies, one to my father, one to my mother, 
and one to my friend Tom Lutz. And I knew that they had to go together. And I knew that they were sort of the central emotional engagement of the book. So I put them in the middle. And then the book naturally arranged itself around them because there were poems that were grave that had a lot of seriousness to them that belonged with those elegies and they had to all be cordoned off in one section and then there were poems that had different emotional colorations and i i put ones I, I arranged them in relationship to that central section, either before or after. And they seem, you know, and a lot of this is just intuition, right? But one gets to know one's work well in the process of writing it. So you kind of figure out how the landscape should be arranged. You know, I mean, going back to the counterculture, I mean, You know, those great, you know, rock albums of the 60s, like Sgt. Pepper or Rubber Soul. Blonde on Blonde. Yeah. They were all thematic in some way. They all sort of hung together. They weren't, they weren't miscellaneous. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and I grew up very, with, with that paradigm very strongly in my mind. Yeah, and, and, and it definitely shows in, in your collections. And, and I was curious, uh, the, the, the one three sections, which won the Pulitzer. Um, and, and I asked this question, not because I have an opinion on it. I only ask because I'm always curious how uh, an artist reacts to their own work relative to the way the public reacts to it. And the question is, a, a Pulitzer for a writer is very much a sort of a crowning achievement in a way. Uh, do you look at that book and go, oh yeah, that's definitely my best, my best book? Or are you just, were you um, surprised or do you go, you know, like, wow, that is not what I, uh, like, Man, I, I thought this other one should have should have won, not not this. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, did, did you have any kind of reaction in in that vein at all? Oh no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Recently, the the new book was is my best book. I mean, I think various people have said that, and I don't really quite understand what they mean by that because for me. All of those books are equally good. And to my mind, they're equally interesting. And, um, you know, Wild Kingdom was the first book and it had the faith of the first book, you know. The second book, The Long Meadow, which I think did not do very well compared to three sections is a book I consider as good as, you know, in some way as good as I can get, you know, but I've only published four books and that really makes a difference too. 
you know, if you're one of those people where there are long gaps between the books and long periods where you're sort of fallow or doing something else or not really focused in some way on producing a book. I mean, most American poets produce books, you know, the ones who are functioning and working produce books every three or four years. And I produce books every sort of six or seven years. And, um, and I got a late start with poetry did a lot of other things and uh, yeah so the books are long meditated they're thought about a lot and, uh, in my case and they really are selected poems of that period because I do write 10 times as many poems as I actually finish and, uh, wow and have an enormous number of fragments that really never went anywhere. And some of them are pretty large fragments. Yeah, that, that reminds me when they say of, uh, of Thriller, they, they wrote something like 100 songs and then pared it down to, I think, like 10. Right. That's, that's kind of what you got to do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think one of my neuroses is that I tend to be perfectionistic. And I've really sort of gotten away from that, but I think I get away from that more when I'm writing prose, especially if I have deadlines, than I do writing poetry. I mean, there are no, there have never been any deadlines for my poetry. It's just all been me. And so somehow aspects of myself that tend to impede my finishing things come to the fore when I'm writing poetry. You know, I will spend a long, long time just trying to get something very, very small right. And, uh, and so when the books do come out, I really think that they're the best that I can possibly make them, each one. Yep. So I can't really make a distinction between them. Fair, fair enough. And what um, do you, your, your most recent book you published in 2020, um, do you have any, uh, you, you said six to seven years. So I, I, I suppose I won't ask if you have anything on the horizon, um, but do, do you, are, are, are you thinking about another book or do you sort of just let it organically develop? Yeah, I, you know, actually I am sort of speeding up the process, but what I've been doing you now, the first part of the COVID year, I really didn't bother to write, you know, I just read and read and read and taught my classes on Zoom and just sat around being very disturbed and in a state of fearfulness about everything. And also I was publishing that was now, this is then. And, uh, and when you're publishing a book, you're kind of crazy anyway. And then COVID sort of intensified that craziness. So when I started writing again, it was writing prose. And I have two books that I'm trying to finish by the end of the summer. One is, you know, a collection of all of my essays, which should be pretty easy because I've gotten all the essays together and, you know, and I'm writing one more right now 
and I just wrote one. And uh, that's not going to be a problem. And then uh, my long kind of, I guess I would call it an autobiography, not really a memoir, but it's not even that. It's sort of, uh, it's just kind of trying to account for my American experience. Hmm. And I have like, maybe two thirds of that done. That I think I yeah. By the summer. So those will be two books of prose, but I think after that, I want to publish another book of poems pretty quickly. You know? And when I really commit to publishing a book of poems, I think I can, you know, I do produce a lot quickly. And, uh, and I sort of realized that at my age and, you know, given the possibility of things happening, and I think COVID has awakened us all to you know, the precariousness of our situation. Yes. And, uh, so I sort of feel like, oh, now is the time for me to produce a lot and uh, get a lot done because uh, who knows what the next virus is going to be like. I, I know. I was, uh, when in January of 2020, I, I started, I took a year sabbatical from my job to go travel the world. And I had been putting it off and putting it off for such a long time. And uh, it, it's, it's such a wake up call that like, whatever you're going to do, just, just do it now if you can. Because a, a comet could fall out of the sky, a virus could spread around the world. You know, you could slip and fall and go into a coma. I mean, you don't want to live your life in fear of those things because, I, you know, but these things happen. Um, and, and not to, to end this thing on, on such a, a dour note, but, <laughs> but it's, it's um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the books you're going to put out. Um, before I let you go here, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, is uh, how can people reach you? Uh, if they want to buy some of your, uh, your, your books um, or if they want to, you know, follow you online, do you, do you have any way for people to connect? I have, you know, I am on Facebook. Okay. I can always be reached through Sarah Lawrence email. You know, Sarah Lawrence College is where I teach. Okay. And, uh, but uh, basically if you want to buy my book, you know, there are many venues. I yes. Mean, I, and, uh, I guess, you know, hopefully, the bookstores will open and you'll be able to buy it in a bookstore. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and you, you probably haven't been able to give any readings either, except maybe on Zoom. On Zoom, yeah, and Zoom readings are very unsatisfying. Yes. Just yeah. that, I mean, it's amazing what you take for granted then you realize, you know, how silly of you it was, you know, to have a live audience was just really, I realized when I lost it, how much pleasure I took in it, you know, how much I liked interacting with people in a room. And uh, even, you know, a small number of people, like, and it would just have to be one person, you know, yeah. that would be fine for me. But, uh, the Zoom readings 
just it's so it was so hard to reach out to that audience and uh, not not quite the same but ho- hopefully we'll we'll have you uh and and the rest of the world back up and uh giving and listening to reading soon um but in the meantime vj thank you for your time you got it for this ab- ab- absolutely it was you know pleasure was all mine so uh thanks again and have a great rest of your day okay and you have a great rest of your day and a great weekend and stay in touch already will do bye-bye bye thank you to vijay sheshadri thanks for listening to dunk tank see you next time